So this morning we are on the calendar. We look at this Sunday as what we call Palm Sunday. And one of the things that I was thinking about this week when I was wondering about Palm Sunday and kind of meditating on the work that Jesus was going to do this week, what was the big deal with the palm branches? Well, the palm branches were used in ancient times, and they were used as a symbol of celebration, of victory for those like in Greek and Roman athletes when they won, they got palm branches, and they waved these palm branches in celebration and victory and triumph. But let's think about that when people are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, they're waving palm branches and they're laying them on the ground. So what does this mean? But we could take that same symbolism that they use for the athletes and the emperors because even Caesar Augustus was known as God, the son of God and a savior. So this turns when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. When they're crying to Jesus, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This celebration is about Jesus's victory, is about his triumph, and it's setting the stage for the week. So when we look at this total celebration that we're coming into, this celebration is the most complete celebration that we could ever have because it is a celebration of our victory also, of the triumph that we have, of the grace that we're shown by this King of Kings. So Jesus came in humility where those people in the world tried to come in glory. But Jesus gave way to the glory of his Father by actually performing the work that he did. So <clears throat> this morning, let's look at the history, if you will, some of the history of how this was recorded in prophecy. If we look at um, Zechariah chapter 9, let's look at chapter 9 and the ninth verse. And I'll just read a few verses here and put some perspective on this. So verse 9 starts out, and the heading in this paragraph of mine says, The coming of, the, of Zion's king. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and virtuous, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His domination will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the end of the earth. 
As for you, because the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that you, I will restore double to you. For I bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. So it was a prophecy about who Jesus is and what Jesus actually, what his work actually is. Because, was it say in verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. What is this waterless cistern that he's talking about? It's our life. It's our life outside of Jesus. It's, it's how we are released from something that is symbolic, if you will, even if we look at the way that we talk about who, what Jesus did. He washes our sins with this pure water of his blood. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. So not only will we have victory in this life, we'll have victory forever. So after this is life, in this life we win the salvation of our souls through the work of Jesus. In our afterlife, we gain the victory of heaven forever. And then he talks about what he's going to do. For I will bend Judah as my bow. And I will fill that bow with Ephraim, another ungodly, uh, worldly people. And I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece. These people who are, again, believing in some other philosophy than what they should be believing when they believe in the covenant of God. So as we look at this, we see that the Lord will indeed vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. This is talking about the desolation period between the end of the Old Testament and the work of Jesus. So Jesus comes after this desolation of nothingness, if you will, where the world is left in an ungodly state, where people are wandering further and further away from what God wants us to do, is to believe in him. Okay, so let's turn our Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 36. I'm sorry, chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 36. Here's another Old Testament writing by Moses. Verse 36 starts, The Lord will indeed vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone. And no one is left, slave or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock they found refuge in? And this rock is in lowercase. So they're talking about statues and things that are man-made and things on the earth that have no life. 
who ate fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let it be a shelter for you. See, I alone am he. So he's here talking about when they turn to things that are of this world and try to act, ask them for salvation, they get nothing because he says here in verse 39, see now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. I raise my hand to heaven and I declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword, my hand takes hold of judgment. I will make my, take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Jesus. We always, we have a song that, uh, I don't know if it's in our book, but it goes, Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. He is the only thing. So this morning when we're celebrating this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the beginning of the Passion, we have to think about how these things were prophesied and why Jesus is doing what he's doing. The fulfilling of all the prophecy in the Old Testament in one person that God created totally sinless. So Let's go to the New Testament now. Let's look at Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 1. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And I'm going to read quite a bit here. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village and ahead of, that lays ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying that, the donkey? They answered him just as Jesus had told them. So they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and, on, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead... And those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here it says in the recording that Mark has put down, it's probably slightly different than the other Gospels, but every Gospel that's in the New Testament talks about Jesus' triumphal entry. 
I know that I've talked about the word Hosanna, which is different than what we've seen as far as hallelujah and those other words of praise. But the word Hosanna stands for save me, save me. So if we took that and put those words into the word Hosanna, which is translated out of the Hebrew, it says, save me. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Save me in the highest heaven. Grant me victory. So the symbolism of the palm branches that are laid in the road and are waved by the people by in, to Jesus is a celebration of, of victory, of saving. This too is prophesied. So this triumphal entry that Jesus comes into is contrasted in many different ways in history because at the same time that Jesus goes down into Jerusalem on the other side of town on another road, Pontius Pilate is coming in with a big army and those people are praising him also but they're praising him as a God of the world. So the God of the universe, the son of God is coming in on one side of the, of, of the town, if you will. And on the other side of the town comes the entry of the world. And they're in pomp and circumstance. And Jesus doesn't take that glory on because the Jewish people at that time thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to be the king. The other thing that is a misconception during this time is that the people that are praising Jesus on the way into town by saying, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is a blessed one. The, David's kingdom is being brought forth. Let's go to the, the book of Luke chapter 22. In my Bible, the heading here is the plot to kill Jesus. <clears throat> the festival of the unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was drawing near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you enter the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make preparations there. 
So they went and found just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread and gave thanks, and he, or broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established in my blood. It is shed for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which one of them it could be that was going to do this thing. So this too is a different uh, description than what John has about the Lord's Supper. What's different about this? When Jesus goes into this room, he understands everything that's going to happen to him. He's trying to prepare his apostles to understand the work that he has to do, which our human minds could never understand. So he's trying to put into perspective the work that he's going to do. What is this Passover? of the unleavened bread. The Passover is reminiscent of the time in Egypt before they were liberated from Egypt and went into the promised land. So another prophecy is being fulfilled here. As Jesus is talking about this bread, he's talking about him being sinless. There is no yeast in unleavened bread. So there's nothing in this bread that would grow and make it bigger. The bread that is being prepared here, or has been prepared, is symbolic of Jesus' life. So when he goes and has this unleavened bread feast with his apostles, he's telling them about his body and his blood. The blood is reminiscent of the sacrificial lamb that has been slain and the blood of that sacrificial lamb or the lamb of sacrifice in Egypt's time was a pure and unblemished lamb. And the blood of that lamb was put on the doorposts of those people who were God's promised people. That blood did not allow the angel of death to come in to strike and cause any death in that household. So God is showing through his prophecy the work that Jesus is going to do. So we have this human mind that we're trying to understand, and the apostles knew about that unleavened bread festival. They knew what it was all about, but they didn't understand the work that Jesus was going to do to fulfill the work that God did for the Israelites 
to get them out of oppression, the land of sin, and get them into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, which is symbolic of heaven. So when they hear that something is going to happen to Jesus, because he says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established in my blood. It is shed for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. So Jesus knew. And I would understand in my mind that Jesus knew that Judas was going to do this already. Because Judas was busy all the time keeping track of the money. So his focus was not on the furthering of the kingdom. His focus was on uh, putting himself in God's place that way. So he had the money. He could do what he wanted. He was pilfering money out of the money bag to do as he pleased, to please himself. I would believe that Jesus knew this also. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. That's a prophecy. But woe unto that man whom he is betrayed. So Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by this man. What happens to the apostles? They stop focusing on what Jesus is saying and they start looking at themselves saying, Oh, is it me? Am I the one that's going to do this? Very similar to, our, to us human beings and our weakness, thinking that, oh, I don't know, I don't, I'm not going to do that sin. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be sinful. I'm going to stay away from sin. And we fall. We fall not only in the fact that we are sinners, but we fall in the fact that we let our pride get in the way of what Jesus wants for us, to be humble and understand that he will forgive us and our sins are forgiven forever. So the work that Jesus is doing is still a mystery to his apostles, even though they have been with him and learned about him for over three years. They've seen him work, they've seen the miracles that he's done, the things that he's talked about, the sermons that he's given, the, the uh, companionship he's given them, the love and the comfort he's given them in their life with him. Let's go to John. Let's go to the 20, 12th chapter of John. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 20. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and they requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will remain by itself. But if it dies, it will produce a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates this, his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. That is why I come. I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it, and it was like thunder. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus replied, This voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. Uh, Let's go to verse 34. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the scripture that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus is talking about, his again, his work, but in a different way here. Who comes to him? Some Greeks. Some people who are Gentiles. Non-believers. Unbelievers. But they have heard about Jesus. And they want to see him. And they want to hear him. Because obviously something has happened to their soul. And they have been given some awakening. And they want to hear. So what does Jesus tell the people who would know him as a Jewish person? He tells them, This voice came not for me but for you. Now is the judgment of the rule world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. For as for me, I am lifted up. From the earth I will draw all people to myself. That last part of that statement says, From the earth I will draw all people to myself. This is what he's talking about when he's telling his apostles that he will even save the world. The world isn't just the Israelites or the Jewish people. The world is everybody. Everyone. Even the prophet Joel says in his book, anyone who calls on the Lord's name will be saved. This is the world. What's the problem with the world? The world can't give up themselves to humble themselves to become believers. We must all repent from our sin to take place in this celebration, even at Palm Sunday. Because as the world celebrates Palm Sunday, they put their glory into the celebration. Just like the people that did at the time that Jesus came into Jerusalem. When they're on the other side of town, they're lifting up a human god, Pontius Pilate, the representation of Caesar Augustus in Rome. Jesus is trying to describe to the people who are there that this work that he is doing is for them. It's for you. It's for me. We have to put away the world. We have to live humbly by him. Now, when I talk about the world, I'm not saying that we isolate ourselves and become cloistered into a cult. We put away the world by trying to partake of everything that is in the world that will take us away from who Jesus is. Sin. He has promised 
to save us. This work that he's talking about here, he is showing us. This work that he is doing is a preservation, the preservation of our soul, the soul that will live forever and take part in a permanent celebration with all of those loved ones who have gone on before us. Because when we get to heaven and we see all those who are there ahead of us, what a great rejoicing that will be. And then we can say, thank you for the Hosanna that came in the name of the Lord that brought the kingdom of David forward so that you and I can live eternally. This Passover is for you. This Passover is for me. Is the blood of the lamb, the paschal lamb, the perfect sacrifice on your doorpost. That's what this is asking. In Jesus' name, amen.